This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. We're here in the studio today with one of George Fox's treasures, oh, <laughs> Phil Smith, who's a professor of philosophy. And I have always enjoyed the fact that your first name is Phil and you teach philosophy. Yes. I don't know if that was... Some students have uh, joked about this at various times over 30 years. I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> yes. Well, I'm also one of your former students. So I had Phil as a professor. I was a philosophy major. He's sometimes given me grief that I kind of switched teams and got my doctorate in English. Yeah. But the thing is, what I do now is pretty much still, it's still in the realm of philosophy more You've than lit. Home. I know. <laughs> well, it's really, the I mean, I just love theology. I love philosophy. I love it all. I love to do it all. Um, yeah. So we're going to have a talk today about dualism, mm -hmm. which I'm really excited about. One of my interests is Christian anthropology, mm -hmm. how the body connects with the self and the soul. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking today, yes. and if, especially about how... Um, how dualism tends to manifest in our culture around sexual politics, right? So okay. that's where we're going to head because um, I think that's where that's where the fun stuff is. But first of all, I guess we should probably lay some groundwork a little bit. Like, what mm -hmm. is what are we talking about here when we talk about dualism? Right, because dualism's been part of our culture for at least twenty four hundred years, um, and there's. I, I was flying home actually from a vacation uh, with my wife. Um, realizing that um, our current culture is greatly shaped by what I think I'm going to call a new form of dualism, um, but it has roots in, in past dualisms. Um, so in my intro to philosophy class, everybody gets exposed to the most formative of dualisms, Platonic dualism. Plato um, has this... He understands human beings. So we're, what we're talking about is th philosophical anthropology. That is, what is the philosophical view of a human person? Okay. And in Plato's view, it's pretty straightforward. You have a body and you have a soul. Um, you know, in the Phaedo, Socrates asks his friends, what happens when a person dies? Isn't it just this? Body over here, soul over there. Um, and they say, oh, yeah, that's it. So they've all bought into what we call platonic dualism. There are some aspects of Platonic dualism that uh, are pretty familiar and very influential. Um, <clears throat> first of all, the body um, causes all kinds of moral problems. It's the body that makes us want to sleep and eat and get more stuff and have sex and all that. Bodies just distract us all the time. Um, but bodies are also bad intellectually. We don't get any good knowledge through bodies. The, the way to really know something uh, Socrates says, and his example is equality. We can measure this, you know, we can say this book is equal to this book, but it's not really equal. We can have two sticks that are equal to each other, two stones that are equal, but we know that they aren't perfectly equal. Right. Well, how is it that we know this? Socrates says, well, because we know, our souls know, perfect equality, which we've never ever seen. So, our soul knows best when it kind of separates itself from the body, Socrates says, and, and just concentrates on things by itself. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, he's not mostly interested in equality or mathematical forms or, um, you know, logical forms. He's interested in things like beauty and justice and truth. Mm -hmm. right. um, but that sets up platonic dualism. Even today, we still talk about platonic relationships mm -hmm. where a person is not interested in um, the physical appearance of the one you love. You're really interested in her mind, right? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you say that, like the you know the body causes problems for us and moral problems, like that's the Platonic dualistic view, right? Yes. You're, you're not necessarily, you know, affirming that view. In fact, I, <clears throat> one of the problems over the 2,300 years of Platonic dualism is the way it has deformed Christian understanding of Scripture. Yes, I was just going to say that. Um, yeah. In the New Testament, Paul famously says that we should be uh, led by the Spirit and we move away from the 
the, the flesh. Sarks, the mm. flesh. The yeah. Greek, Greek word is sarks. He does not use the Greek word somatos for body. He uses sarks. Mm. But given our, you know, we put our Plato glasses on and we read the scripture and we see bodies and souls. Yeah. Um, and many, many New Testament scholars will warn against this. That, you know, be careful, don't read uh, Platonism into the scriptures. But we've been doing it for centuries right. and centuries. And so it greatly influences people. Oh, yeah, big time. I mean, I see this in in my students. You know, when we, in, in the honors program, when we start reading um, the early church fathers and um, reading about the resurrection, for example, some of my students who've grown up in the church are surprised that the resurrection means like a bodily resurrection, like for us, right? right. Sometimes they'll say, well, it's like a spiritual resurrection, right? So they still seem to have this idea of like, you know, this this little like ghost, ghostly cartoon soul that's like the true you. And that's right. that's like, like we're all Casper inside, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> and like, it's Casper that goes to heaven. In yeah. fact, hallelujah, by and by, someday I'll fly away. I mean, right. we have... No, that's just popular Christianity of the mid-20th century in a song that our young people have never heard. <laughs> but I remember it. Um, and it's the idea that I go to heaven. That is, my soul goes to heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and so thoughtful Christians through the centuries have had to kind of step back from Cartesian dualism and say, no, no, we got to reemphasize the resurrection. We need to reemphasize the goodness of bodily things. Sometimes we have said... Um, under the influence of Plato more than scripture, we've said all bodily desires, you know, for houses or lands or whatever are all bad. You know, well, greed is bad. Right. Theft is bad. Pride. Pride. These these mm -hmm. things are sins. But, you know, there are some sins that don't seem very bodily exactly. at all. Like pride. Yeah. Pride and uh, bitterness. Uh, you can be mm -hmm. bitter and resentful and have nothing, it seems to me, nothing to do with your body. It's just, right. you know, resenting this other person. Yes. Like idolatry yeah. or, yeah. So it seems like when you look at, when you actually, I think you're right that people can misread Paul here in this mm -hmm. platonic way. Um, and actually, interestingly, Augustine in the city of God has this great rebuttal of this reading of Paul, because he says that when Paul speaks about the flesh and the spirit, what he means is the whole person according to the spirit or the whole person according to the world, like the flesh, right? right. So right. it includes the will, it includes, so it's not actually this simplistic, like body is bad, soul is good. Um, but yet, okay, so I do, however, there is a sense in which Christianity does affirm the separation of the body and soul at death. Like that's what death is, right? Well, Jesus says, um, do not be afraid of him who can kill the body, kill you. Be afraid of him who can then after death send you to hell. So there does seem to be some kind of dualism. Um, so when I speak, when I say that um, Platonic dualism has deformed our understanding of the, the gospel or of the scriptures. I am not meaning to say that all dualism is bad. Some, you spoke about students discovering dualism in, in class. Sometimes they go to the other extreme and say, well, then all dualism is bad. We've got, you know, anytime right. dualism sh shows up, that's evil. Yeah. Um, well, there is some aspect of, you know, human beings are complicated. Mm -hmm. And it's not really easy at all, or maybe not even possible to speak of us just as one thing. We do have different parts to us. Right. Um, so soul and body is okay language, but we need to be careful about it. And Augustine warns against it. He, he's, a, he's a corrector. Yeah. Now we need to skip forward though. Um, there's another form of dualism that has greatly shaped our culture, much more, much closer to us in time. And that's Cartesian dualism from Descartes. Um, Descartes, um, was trying to answer all kinds of questions of disagreement, philosophical disagreement, scientific. He lived in the beginning of the scientific age. Um, cultural disagreement, the, the Reformation is going on. There's all kinds of right. outward wars in Europe for many, many reasons. Um, and he's looking for, how can I really know? And it's Descartes that actually gives us this idea of knowledge that is Unindutability. I've got to know for sure. That's what true knowledge is. And everybody knows how he plays his little game. Uh, uh, I'm, I sometimes dream 
and dreams, you know, they mm -hmm. seem so real. So that can't be it. I can't trust my dreams. Maybe I'm dreaming now. Uh, and he, he, he invents the matrix before the matrix ever comes because he has the, you know, the evil demon, almost as powerful as God, who is just delighting to de deceive me. Um, of course, in the matrix, it's not an evil demon. It's evil supercomputers, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he says, and all the students know this, there's one thing that evil demon can't fool me on. Kogoto ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And very quickly he moves from that. He says, well, how is it that I'm absolutely sure that I am? Because I'm thinking. And so for Descartes, it's not body versus soul. It becomes body versus mind. The key thing about a human being is that he is a thinking thing. Mm -hmm. Um now, Cartesianism quickly makes it, gives itself impossible problems because he defines all material things as extended in space. The cup is extended in space. My, you know, my hand is extended in space. But minds are not extended in space at all. It's not that they're small or that they're ghostly like Casper. Right. It's they don't take any space at all. <clears throat> they're purely immaterial. Purely immaterial. So how can, uh, so the problem is there immediately in Descartes. How does in a purely immaterial right. thing um, change the world by making me lift up a coffee cup? Right. If how do they some, interact? In other if words, somebody yeah. puts something in my tea, it's going to mess up my uh, mm -hmm. brain. How does that interaction happen? So interaction right. is real, mm -hmm. but if Descartes is right, it should never happen. So Cartesianism mm. senses, sets up a conundrum that it can't answer. Nevertheless, Cartesian dualism, which is in some ways more extreme than Platonic dualism, has greatly influenced our culture since Descartes died mm -hmm. in 1650. The reaction against Descartes really begins maybe after 200 years in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, and we have moved, but Descartes is still influential. I told you earlier about the, this is a delightful movie you got to see, is uh, All of Me by, it's got Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin in it. Um, the guru does some magic words and puts, D Lily Tomlin's uh, dying of cancer, right? So he puts her mind into Steve Martin's body. Of course they have, I'm talking about the, the actors rather than the characters. Um, and, he doesn't get rid of Steve Martin's mind. So they have two minds in one body and they're having this internal dialogue, <laughs> internal fight. And Steve Martin has one of the most brilliant pieces of physical comedy ever. He actually makes you believe that two parts of his body are being controlled by two different minds and they're fighting against each other. Right. It's just delightful. And in the end, then uh, they take Lily Tomlin's mind and put her back into a young woman's body. And the young woman's mind is put into a horse. So everything is happy ending, you know, um, and this happens because, I mean, we can actually watch the story and pay attention to it mm -hmm. because we have been so shaped by Cartesian dualism. Right. It we like intuitively minds, makes sense, It right? makes like, sense oh, to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. This is Descartes. We don't say this is Descartes all over. It's our culture shaped by Descartes, and we haven't really thought about it. Yeah. You know, it's craziness. Um, and the reaction comes, as I said, in the late 19th century, and it's really kind of developed over a hundred and some years now, so that we have a different form of dualism. And this is the part that I was writing this essay about dualisms, mm -hmm. and I mentioned it to Abby, and that's why she said that I've got to have you come <laughs> and, and talk here. I think our culture is now being influenced by another form of dualism, now, it's the Platonic dualism and the Cartesian dualism is still there in the background. But what I want, and I had to have a name for it, so I call it therapeutic dualism. Hmm. Therapeutic dualism is dualism because it separates between the body and something else. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to call that something else the heart. Hmm. Um, I'm making up the term... Sometimes therapeutic, therapeutic dualists will actually use the term, like in the, the very common saying, follow your heart, right. right? But sometimes they don't. You do you. You don't have to use the word heart. So that's why it's dualistic. There's this other part of you that's not your body. Mm -hmm. And just as in Platonic dualism or Cartesian dualism, it's this other part that is the real you. Mm -hmm. 
It's not your body. It's this other part, what I'm calling the heart. And it's therapeutic. So it's dualistic because it has a heart. Um, and it's therapeutic because if you do follow your heart, if you do you, you'll be better. You'll be happier. Life will be good. Um, now, I said the criticism of Cartesian dualism started in the 19th century, and I associate it with three very important intellectual figures. Um, first of all, Karl Marx. Marx uh, reacted against Cartesian dualism because he said the human being is not to be identified with his conscious, political, religious, artistic views. He's got all of these views, but what Marx calls the superstructure. It's all society. Mm -hmm. But that is carried by what he calls the base. And no surprise in Marx, it's economics. Mm -hmm. It's our economic relationships that drives everything else. Yeah. Now, modern or contemporary uh, therapeutic dualists probably don't buy that, but they buy part of it. Mm -hmm. They the idea that the conscious self isn't the real self. It's your social relationships that matter. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this lies in, it's, it's uh, represented in what we sometimes call um, intersectionality. Mm -hmm. um, imagine Joe. Joe is giving a speech. Um, we don't really need to listen to his speech. We know Joe because Joe is white and Joe is male and Joe is Christian, and Joe is privileged. He's had a, he went to college, and he's had a privilege. Um, and Joe is old. If you know all of the different social descriptors of Joe, you actually know Joe. I mean, because that's all that's really important. The conscious mind that he, that he writes his speech with kind of floats on top of all of his um, social groupings. Um, and I, I think this idea is borrowed from Marx. Marx, this is what I'm going to call, or I've been calling the Marxist part of um, therapeutic dualism. Mm -hmm. We have to understand where we are. The next part is the uh, Freudian part. Um, Freud says, again, <laughs> that you're not really this conscious you. Mm -hmm. It's really your desires that create you. Um, and Famously, we, we're aware that Marx says many of our desires are sexual and we repress them. But there are other desires like um, the desire, the drive toward death. Um, mm -hmm. Marx thought that, I mean, Freud right. thought that was quite important. Um, contemporary dualists kind of ignore that part of Freud. Um, and it's important to say that uh, psychology has got great differences. I mean, there's all kinds of schools of psychology, right? Um, but I want to say whether you're a humanistic psychologist, behavior psychologist, determinist, whatever, whatever form, positive psychology, we are all Freudians yeah. in, in a restricted sense. This very, don't misunderstand. All kinds of psychology are Freudian in this sense that the real you is not the conscious, rational, Cartesian self. The real you is this unconscious stuff, mm -hmm. the yeah. subconscious stuff. And they will explain it in different, in different schools of psychology. That's where they go different directions. But they're all Freudian to that extent. Mm -hmm. um, now, this uh, begins to really affect our current debates about gender. Mm -hmm. Because the real you is determined by your desires. Right. Um, so it's not so much the thinking self, it's the desiring self. Right. And so you need to get in touch with your desires to mm -hmm. know who you're real. So how do you, be, um, in, in, in Freud himself, how do you get good therapy? You begin to get in touch with your desires. You some, Now, be careful about misunderstanding Freud. Freud knows that we've got to repress some of our desires. We right. cannot not repress it. We have to control yeah. We can't act on every desire that we've got. Society would be crazy. Right. So um, all cultures have to teach people to control their desires. But usually what happens then is they repress them. They, they try to stuff them down mm -hmm. and they become unconscious of them and all kinds of neuroses emerge from this. So getting in touch with your feelings and dealing with it well, that's 
that's Freudian mm -hmm. therapy. Um, but all, it seems to me, almost all of contemporary therapeutic dualists have bought that idea. Right. Get in touch with you and you will be better. Mm -hmm. You do you. It's interesting that like the desire thing, like a Freudian understanding of desire as, and maybe this is more like the, the kind of knockoff Freudian understanding of desire, not necessarily Freud himself, but this idea that channeling or suppressing or somehow controlling our desires is actually harmful to the self, mm -hmm. right? Is so different than so much ancient wisdom where it's like, if you're ruled by your desires, that's what's harmful to the self, right? I mean, if you read, yeah. you know, if you read Aristotle, <laughs> we just finished reading Aristotle. I mean, in I've been teaching in the last couple of weeks, we've been reading Confucius. We've been reading um, Aristotle, you know, we've been reading Plato. So we've been, mm -hmm. you know, across cultures, even East and West, the Bhagavad Gita, right? Yeah. Um, they all have this sense that somehow if we just let desires run amok, that actually leads to suffering. And mm -hmm. that actually can be bad for the self, right? But that's so not the way in our culture that we talk about desire now. Mm -hmm. Like if you're if you're not kind of fulfilling your desire and doing what you want, then you're actually harming yourself. Like especially when it comes to to sex, right? Yeah. Like you're this is yeah. a, a, a a low-grade Freudianism. Freud himself would say, mm -hmm. "No, no, no. Mm -hmm. We've got to. We've got to do better." That's a good but, way of putting it. Um, but yeah, so getting in touch with the real, real self, which is going to be your innate. And the important thing is that these desires are innate. You did not choose them. Mm -hmm. You are. You need to become aware of them, and then you can act more responsibly. The third nineteenth-century uh, person that contributes to therapeutic dualism is Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. um, and Nietzsche would agree with Freud that we have a drive toward life. But he goes much, much further. He says we, the, the, the heart of a person is to assert himself. And almost always for Nietzsche, it's himself. It's himself. <laughs> um, when right. you go to a woman, do not forget your whip. Ooh. One of the quotes of Nietzsche. A charming fellow <laughs> who died of syphilis. I'll just put that out there. Oh, right? <laughs> well, yes. Uh, but so Nietzsche emphasizes um, will and willpower. He ridicules, actually, um, the drive for it, happiness. He ridicules uh, uh, John Stuart Mill. You know, mm -hmm. man does not seek happiness. Only the Englishman does that. Um, <laughs> Famously, um, Nietzsche says we have, yes, the Apollonian side of our cult, ourself and the Dionysian side of ourself. We have the desire for so Apollo pleasure. and Dionysus. Right, those just, are the yeah, figures. Yeah, right. Yeah. Apollo is rational and controlled mm -hmm. and all this, but Dionysus is uh, full of like you know, frat boy. Yeah, he's, mm -hmm. a, he's a frat boy. He, <laughs> you know, pleasure. Um, yeah. Drink now. We're in a toga. Uh, and somehow the energy of these two need to be combined in a, in a uh, healthy person, and you should not let that be controlled by others. Mm -hmm. And so there is an emphasis I'm suggesting. Now, this is all my observation of our current culture. There is an emphasis on me and what I want and expressing myself to be my true self. Right. And these three parts, um, the... Um, Marx. So the Marxist part, the mm -hmm. social group part, the innate drives part from Freud, the um, will, the sovereign will from Nietzsche, kind of combine in therapeutic dualism. We see it um, in our um, current sexual politics, and they don't all hang together perfectly well. No, they don't, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I kind of want to talk about that a yeah. little bit, right? Yeah. Um, for a long while, um, the Freudian insight that you've got to um, honor your innate drives kind of ruled the day in sexual politics. This is why we, we now I'm going to show some of my um, skepticism here. We invented the notion of a um, sexual nature. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be really bold and say, I don't know what a sexual nature is. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody else does either. Mm -hmm. um, supposedly, there are different sexual desires. Now, that is true. Mm 
Yes. Uh, and there's lots of evidence uh, from the experimental psychologists have shown us that people have desires that they did not show. So they're innate in the, the Freudian sense that I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. And so they determine what you are. And so very quickly in the 20th century, not before, actually the word homosexual was um, invented in the 19th century. All the others have been invented since then. Right. Um, by the others, you mean like bisexual? Bisexual or, yeah. or now and very recently non-binary or, mm -hmm, or sure. polyamorous or whatever. So it, so we have people with different desires and they have different, so therefore they have different sexual natures. And then in our uh, debate about um, sexual behavior, the next step is if you have a sexual nature, then the right thing is to act according to that sexual nature. Um, this gets confusing, uh, confusing because um, the Freudian, I mean, the, the Nietzschean part kind of steps forward in recent times. And we see this especially in those who say that they are non-binary. Um, it's not just that I'm not male and I'm not female. I choose. And I choose to reject the whole binary mm -hmm. um, classification. So I am non-binary now. Next year, I may be, um, I will call myself a lesbian. And the next year, I will be a heterosexual female. Um, or the next year, I will be the, a heterosexual male. I can be anything I want. <clears throat> Which brings me to a, a slogan from our popular culture that we probably haven't thought of in terms of our uh, sexual ethics. And that is we tell children, you can be anything you want. Right. Um, which is a lie. Mm -hmm. um, children cannot be Martian royalty. Um, well, I think that's just silly, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you read enough science fiction, I want to be a Martian royal. Uh, the royal house of uh, Mars is, you know, more respectable than the royal house of England. And well, you can't be in the royal house of England either. Um, we had an American who tried to marry in and they got kicked out. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm being facetious. Why can't you be anything you want? Because you are grounded in the real you. The real you is not your heart. Now I'm getting, I'm getting critical of, the, right, right. of therapeutic dualism. And we need a better kind of dualism. Um, and I want to suggest that the way to find a better kind of dualism is to go back to Aristotle. Because in Arist Aristotle comes right after Plato in our history. Um, and instead of body versus soul, he, if you want to summarize in a really fast way, he says body and soul. Mm -hmm. right. um, if you want to find the form of a person, you look right there in the body of the person. It is expressed right here. Mm -hmm. um, so that bodies and souls go together. Um, now, some Christian philosophers, Thomas Aquinas and others, have said, this helps us better understand the scripture that, and try to make Paul into some kind of an Aristotelian. I think this is a mistake, too. Paul is not an Aristotelian any more right. than he was a, a Platonist. Mm -hmm. um, but still, it helps point towards something that I think is, is helpful, that we ought to understand ourselves in, with an and rather than an against. Yeah. Um, our bodies and souls are part of us. Mm -hmm. They are both part of us. I've kind of gotten off track here. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I think like some of the sometimes the language, at least in in Catholic theology, I've heard is that a human being is a body soul composite, right? Like we're a union of body and soul, mm -hmm. um, and it's true that the body and soul are separated at death, but this is something that's. Uh, there's, it's almost like we're not a complete person in that state until mm -hmm. the resurrection of the body and the restoration of the whole person, right? I don't think almost. I think it is. We're yes. not a complete person in yes. that state. God wills that we have bodies. Now, Paul uses a strange phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, a spiritual body. Right. What does that mean? Um, right. The, um, I don't know. I don't well, know. And now, we, we read that in this kind of platonic sense, right? Like, right. ooh, Casper. I think the better way to do it is to read it in terms of the only spiritual body we actually know. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, know of, and we know very little of, 
And that is Jesus. Jesus yeah. yeah. So Jesus' resurrected body could be recognized by, well, his friends recognized his face, mm -hmm. but he could also be recognized by the scars of the, yeah. the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. Look here, see this. He, he's right. challenging uh, Thomas. Look here, see these wounds. Mm -hmm. um, but it also has pretty remarkable thing. You know, um, those of us who, who uh, watch too much uh, uh, Marvel comics, he has remarkable powers. Right, you know? right. <laughs> he, he appears and disappears. Right. He's able to, you know, well, he catches fish and cooks it. That's not that Exactly. I was just going to say, he likes, he still gets hungry. He wants <laughs> breakfast. You got any fish here? Yeah. I'll eat some of this. <laughs> um, so what Paul says is, we will be changed mm -hmm. um, in 1 Corinthians 15. Right. So I think we, we need to admit our ignorance here, but say what we do, do believe, that there will be a resurrection of the body. Mm -hmm. um, I will be able to recognize you. This is very important for Christ, individual Christian hope. I will recognize Karen. Mm -hmm. um, my second wife, Sarah, will recognize her first husband, Lauren. Um, mm -hmm. It's a good thing Jesus says that there will be like the angels in heaven. <laughs> we won't have to mix up right. which wives and which husbands we are, we are going home with. Um, but we'll be able to recognize each other. We'll know people. Um, mm. So the, these things we are confident of, how that all works out, right. we do, are not. We just don't know. Um, so Christian hope, by the way, I've been working on a book yeah. called Understanding Hope for the last eight years, and it's going to be published soon. Oh, so awesome. um, uh, uh, in terms of Christian hope, we have to recognize um, some things that we just don't know, and mm -hmm. we admit things. Now, I, I'm pretty critical of contemporary therapeutic dualism. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanna, I'm critical of it for a number of reasons. First of all, I think it's not true. That's mm -hmm. the, the, the key thing, because it the basic move is body versus heart, and you are your heart. Mm -hmm. And if you take that very, in a, maybe to a certain extent, it, that's useful and helpful, but if you push it very far, you get into all kinds of silliness, where you can be anything you want. Um, you can change your nature. You get this tension between the Nietzschean part and the Freudian part. Freudian part says, Search for your innate being, and you'll know who you are. And the Nietzschean part that says, no, no, you just choose. So there's tension built in. There are moral problems with it. Um, according to our current um, gender, sexual politics and ethics, you're supposed to fulfill yourself by acting on your true being. But always there is the little utilitarian aside, so long as you don't hurt other people. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's like the guardrails. Yeah, guardrails. Right? Yeah. Well, um, it's inconsistent. Um, one of Plato's really fine books is the Symposium. Mm -hmm. um, in the Symposium, the men are sitting around uh, discussing praise of the God of love. Um, and the example of love that most of them have in mind is the older man for the younger boy. Right. Uh, the ideal age is just about when he's almost to start growing a beard. You know, 12 or 13. He's so pretty. Um, and um, it is true today that there are plenty of men who say, I have sexual desires for just those pretty boys. Yeah. And yet... That is ruled out of bounds because supposedly it hurts those boys. Um, where's the evidence for this? There's plenty of evidence in psychological studies that um, unequal power relationships between older men and younger boys, when it's sexualized, becomes dangerous and harmful. How many of these studies have been done on fair grounds? How many of them have been run by the men who desire younger boys? There was a time when every school of psychology thought that homosexual relationships were bad and damaging. And there were plenty of psychological studies that showed that they were. Mm -hmm. 
We discredit those studies now because they were um, designed under the assumption that of heteronormativity. Um, and if you don't make the assumption of heteronormativity, then we are going to set aside these research studies. So how do we know now that these relationships between men and boys is bad for the boys? We just, we just know they are. At the same time, though, um, that same 12-year-old boy, if he reports in school that he is really a girl, then he gets to um, have the full support toward becoming um, a woman. He, he, he gets to, does he choose? No. Is he getting in touch with his inner self? Or is he choosing? The two sides, one will say, oh, he's choosing. Right, that's good. The other side, he's getting himself in touch with his inner self. Oh, that's good. But the point is, he doesn't, as a 13-year-old or 12-year-old, get to choose to be in a relationship with the 45-year-old man. But he does get to choose to have gender reassignment sur surgery hmm. against the will of his parents. Now, this is not legal, but it is, I'm just talking about the, the philosophical literature. Right. Um, and there are plenty of arguments saying that it should be legal. And I think this is just an inconsistency. So um, the first criticism I had is that... Um, Wait, hold on a second. So what exactly is the inconsistency between that? So you're saying that when we have, when we just have this, um, this idea of consent as kind of the only sort of moral criteria, then... On one hand, a child who's a minor can cons consent to um, procedures that will have lifelong consequences, but cannot consent to have um, sexual relationships with an adult. And you're saying that's, that's inconsistent. That's exactly right, right. Why is that inconsistent? Because in the one, one hand, he gets to choose, and in the other hand, he doesn't get to choose. In right. the one hand, um, the rule... Uh, for your own good, we're gonna we're gonna control this. But it's yeah. But it seems like okay. So here, but here's what it seems like the counter argument would be, which is that, oh well, one is good. So him transitioning to his to his true self, that's good. Whereas, you know, having sex with an adult is harmful, and so that's why. That's but, uh, but that's this why is his true self. I mean, he's twelve. He doesn't he get to say what his true self is? He has figured it out. That yeah, I'm, he does. I'm, Oh, you're saying on the other side. Yes. Yeah, okay. I see. Does I he see get to say, right. I mean, he, he has right, examined right, okay. his heart enough to know that he needs gender reassignment surgery, or he's examined his heart enough to know that he's he needs to be able to have dinner with his, his older friends. Ah, I see. Okay. So the inconsistency is what we're able to, so that on, on the one hand, you know, the 13-year-old boy is able to decide what is harmful and what is good for yes. him in a life-altering yeah. way. But on the other side, he's not. That's right. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Be and you could resolve it one way or the other, but the tension is there between the, f the Freudian part, your innate desires, and the Nietzschean part, do what you choose. Right. Um, and then papering it over with a, a utilitarian, so long as you don't hurt anybody. Right. So I'm I'm interested. Oh, I have, I have so many thoughts. But one, I'm interested in... So you're you're kind of drawing together the the Marx Freud Nietzsche into this thing called therapeutic dualism, and I'm just struck by how much inconsistency or tensions there are in drawing those two together. And the biggest one I see, I think, is between Marx and the other two. So mm -hmm. when we talk about you mentioned intersectionality, right? Um, so as a basic idea, intersectionality is kind of a, a helpful tool of analysis, right? Like it makes sense that. For example, I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw is the theorist who first, who first um, coined this idea of intersectionality. And she was basically observing that black women in America have a different experience than both white women and black men, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and that the feminist movement is not aware of the experiences of black women, and also that the civil rights movement is not really, is, in other words, the feminist movement isn't aware enough about the dimension of race mm -hmm. and the civil mm -hmm. rights movement is not aware enough of the dimension of sex. And once you make right. this move, then others will quickly say, 
But there are other dimensions that you need to, what about immigration status? Sure, or class, you, right? right. Class, so all of these things add in to intersectionality. Intersectionality, intersectionality. I can't yeah. even speak. Um, now, how much of, how influential is it? This is the real you, or is it, I'm back to my example of, of President Biden. Mm -hmm. Do we give um, Joe credit for his speech and his his policies and his proposals, or do we just say, well, we know all about Joe because he's this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what, that's what I think. Okay, so like Crenshaw, when she first wrote about um, intersectionality, she said like, I'm not trying to put forward a totalizing theory of identity, okay. but I think that's exactly what's happened, right? And so sometimes I, in my own work, I like to talk about intersectionalism, almost like mm -hmm. it's this, it takes the kind of basic idea of intersectionality, which makes sense, right? Like when we talk about men and women, you know, we also need to be aware of the other dimensions of class and race and how those might influence people's circumstances. But what I think is maybe the move that's not the good one, and it's probably the Marxist one you're describing, is that what constitutes the self is those very external social circumstances, right? right? right. So it's not as if, you know, I'm this kind of, you know, moral agent who is affected by my circumstances in society and constrained in certain ways and privileged in other ways. That makes mm. sense. But it's rather that myself as such is actually those social relationships mm -hmm. and my it really downplays the will. I mean, that's what I think is the biggest tension here, right? So let me let me see yeah, if I can yeah, yeah. describe the tension, Good. which is, um, let's say this is this is kind of like uh, we talked about knockoff Freudianism. So I'll talk about like knockoff kind of critical race theory, right? Some I think there's some more substantive critical race theorists, but sometimes you'll hear in kind of the pop level um, that you know racism is no longer defined as kind of personal prejudice but it's rather defined as your kind of location in society, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, you if you are a white person, then you are racist in the sense that you have a certain kind of racial privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it redefines racism from this kind of individual thing to more this society, societal or systemic thing. And in that understanding, you know, if a white person protests and says like, look, I know my own heart, and I do not have any hate toward people of other racism races, that argument doesn't hold, right? So mm -hmm. it seems like what defines the person is not the will, not even the desires, but it is these kind of external social circumstances. Um, those are determinative of the individual. Now that right. seems like totally different than yeah. the Freudian and the Nietzsche thing, well, right? This, like those this seem is very contradictory. You've, you've pointed to attention in, you know, if you have these three sources, if, if I'm right, that there are these three sources or strands of therapeutic dualism, there are possible tensions between them. And you've just described one that I really hadn't paid much attention to. I've been paying attention to these others, but it's certainly, I think you're right. Um, if you make it a, complete explanation, as you said, totalizing, understanding of what a person is, that she just is the intersection of all of her different social groups, then we don't need to pay attention. Well, first of all, we don't need to pay attention to her Cartesian rational mind who who produces proofs right. for the... I wonder how this would work in a in a engineering class. I don't <laughs> think in engineering they care much. You know, this famous scene from... Um, Oh, what's the name of that movie? The wonderful movie about the black women in the NASA program in the '60s. Um, something about numbers. Ooh, the woman it's so is, good. I just watched it. What yeah. is it called? Uh, no, something figures. Something hidden figures. Hidden figures. Yes. Anyway, the woman is up on this huge blackboard because oh, it's 1959, so mm -hmm. and she's just writing formula. They don't give a rip about who she is, but that she can do the math. Mm -hmm. Of course, then the social inequality comes up that she has to trot across campus exactly. to go to the bathroom. Exactly. So, um, right. As an engineer, she can do the math. As a human person, then we discover that there's right. You know, then there's what was a great line. We all pee yellow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so both of, okay, okay. So here here's a way of of really highlighting this, and I wouldn't even say it's tension. I would say it's an outright contradiction between these two ideas. If I were to decide to identify as a man or non-binary, um, that that would 
not only be seen as socially acceptable mm -hmm. and possible, but even laudable by kind of, I would say, a, a majority of our culture. Not maybe not a majority, but certainly that's kind of the mm -hmm. the way things are headed. However, if I were to want to identify as a out of my race, if I were to want to identify as a black woman, whoa, whoa, whoa. That would if be you're a po political off. candidate who identifies as Native American falsely, to bring up a real example, you will get right. hammered. Well, I can give you a real example. Yeah, and you should be, I think. Um, but you, you know, there, there have been really, there have been several instances of white women who have identified either as Latino or black and then kind of been, you know, uh -huh. discovered. Outed. And then they just get, you know, canceled uh -huh. immediately. Sometimes they lose their jobs. I mean, they're just like, mm -hmm. they are pilloried, yeah. right? But yet, so what I guess what I'm saying is we have very hard lines or this kind of therapeutic dualism perspective uh -huh. has really hard lines when it comes to race that you uh -huh. cannot appropriate the identity of a person of another race or culture. Sure. But you can absolutely appropriate the identity of the opposite sex, right? So yeah. those seem to me very contradictory yeah. ideas. Like, why is it okay for me to identify as a man, but completely unacceptable for me to identify as, you know, Latino or something? Oh, so I think the the race side seems to be much more grounded in concrete reality in a way. And I think I've been thinking about this contradiction, why, you know, especially like who gets canceled and who gets praised, even though they're both kind of, you know, um, cross identifying. Mm -hmm. So what what which um, which cross identities are are allowed in our society right now? And I think that maybe the reason is that um, critical race theory comes from like legal studies. Right. And I do think Marx is in there. I think mm -hmm. Foucault gets in there. Um, but that's a different theoretical stream than like queer theory. And I think queer theory seems to be much more like, let's bust all the boundaries, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. let's subvert all the norms. Mm -hmm. And so I do think there's a tension here that um, when you try to hold those two things together, they really, they really don't hold, even though people hold them all the time. Like that's, sure. you're exactly right that even though they are deep, this seems like a deep contradiction, most people who have kind of a sense of intersectionalism would also be, you know, totally fine with mm -hmm. most of the contemporary sexual and gender politics, right? So yeah. they are packaged together mm -hmm. in our culture, but when you kind of look under the hood and see philosophically what's going on, a, there's no coherent, clear vision of the human person. Right. Like, is the human person constituted and determined by social relations? Or is the human person constituted by the desiring will? Like those are those are two very different pictures, that's right? right. Like that's a and problem. So the, I started, in a, now let's go up to the 30,000 foot level. Why am I against therapeutic dualism? First, it's not true. Second, uh, it has these competing or even contradictory parts to it. The third ties in with uh, the analysis of <clears throat> Alistair McIntyre in After Virtue. He says that the Enlightenment project of justifying morality, and by this he means kind of the traditional rules circa 1800, um, cannot succeed because the traditional um, picture of morality had man as he is going to become man as he should be if he realized his telos, and ethics is what gets you there, the virtues and the rules. And in modern philosophy, we get rid of the telos. There, you can be anything you, back to this phrase, right. you can be anything you want. And if you can be anything you want, you can't justify the rules. Don't sleep around. Well, um, Don Juan says, but I want to become Don Juan. <laughs> uh, the rules don't apply to me because I don't want to become this. Um, so if there is no telos for the human being, then traditional morality falls apart. The rational project of the what McIntyre calls the enlightenment project of justifying morality falls apart and in the end you get chaos it seems to me that therapeutic dualism ends in the same place because you can be anything you want to be um and there the nietzschean strand really is in control um 
if the Freudian strand were, were in control, you can be whatever your true nature is and, right. and then guard against hurting other people. But I think the, the more Nietzschean uh, strand, try, I mean, it's, it's in conflict with it, but it also kind of erases the whole idea of a telos for human beings. Um, mm -hmm. So three reasons to reject uh, therapeutic dualism. Um, we need to find a better dualism, not... Now, there is an, an option on the table I haven't discussed. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. This is physicalism. There are um, modern uh, people, philosophers and scientists who would say, yeah, we need a better view of human nature. And um, the way to do that is to just get rid of dualism altogether and be physicalist. Right. And Nancy Murphy, who, a terrific uh, Christian philosopher at... at uh, Fuller Seminary and a few others have said that this is the route that we ought to go. We ought to re-understand New Testament language that seems to be dualistic in various places and really just say, in every case, we're talking about the whole person. And they rejoice in the doctrine of resurrection because the whole person gets uh, resurrected. Right. Um, so that you can, a human person is just a living physical thing. And Speaking about her soul or her mind is just kind of a metaphorical way of talking about this physical thing. Um, so it's a view among, it's a, a possibility for philosophical anthropology. Um, it avoids all of, many of the dualistic problems because you just have one thing. It's at least plausible um, under, uh, under Nancy's um, description of it. And she had some other people who worked with her on developing this project of Christian physicalism. Um, I don't really think it's satisfying because there are aspects of us that are best explained as body and soul, you know, the two parts, but it's an and rather than, right. a, than an opposition. So um, mm -hmm. I'm not a, greatly opposed to physicalism. Once upon a time, uh, I don't know, when was it, 15, 20 years ago, Kathleen Gathercole and I taught um, a class together, a, a joint class, mm -hmm. and we uh, really worked on physicalism, and we read Murphy, and we actually went mm -hmm. downtown Portland and listened to Nancy Murphy doing a talk. Uh, it was really exciting to really consider physicalism as a uh, different view of uh, philosophical anthropology. Um, so I'm not eager to, to criticize um, this very heavily. I just think it kind of falls short. It doesn't mm -hmm. um, really fit the scriptures um, well. Um, and it just doesn't fit the way we think about ourselves mm -hmm. as I am a physical being, but I also have some, there are parts of me that don't seem to be physical like I'm at all. not just physical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah. Um, well, another yeah. thought I had when listening to your description about like, and, I'm interested in the heart language um, because the scripture talks a lot about the heart, sure. right? Yeah. So the heart, even especially I think in the in the Old Testament, you certainly see the heart much more than you would see any right. talk of a soul. Mm -hmm. um, so there, I mean, there is a sense in which Christianity is does affirm this idea of there's there's this like kind of center of the person that mm -hmm. is the heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I don't know, I guess I, I guess I kind of want to say like, isn't there something true about that? Yeah. And isn't there something true about desire being good in a Christian sense? Mm -hmm. Right. So what would it look like to bring those concepts in a positive way, the heart and desire, but also in line with a theological anth anthropology that's Christian, right? Cause I think there's like a distorted view sometimes of, Christianity being anti-desire, anti-body. Mm -hmm. And there certainly, I think, have been instantiations of Christianity that have, have leaned that way. Um, so what would it look, what does a, a robust understanding of desire and the heart and the human person look like in a Christian understanding? Well, God made us to be good. Um, he creates us in his image, imago dei. Um, and there's all kinds of things that people say about this, but... Um, Traditionally, this was we were created in the image of God because we're rational beings. This is because the philosophers distorted our right. uh, our theology. Um, Dorothy Sayers points out, you know, actually it's a creation story. Maybe we're in the we're in the image of God because we're creative, 
or mm -hmm, right. male and female, he creates them, says Bonhoeffer. The way that we're in the image of God is that we love the other that is different right. than us. Mm -hmm. So there are various ways that we are in the image of God, or at least have been suggested by theologians. And I would summarize, God made us to be good, beautiful, interesting, um, loving, um, compassionate to each other, united to each other. But that's chapter one. Chapter three, we're not. Um, the doctrine of the fall means that human beings are not what they should be. And this is central to a medieval view of ethics. Man as he is needs to become man as he should be um, because we believe in sin. So out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. So yeah, we need to listen to our heart, but we need to also change our heart. Mm -hmm. um, many of us have recognized, oh yeah, I have deep feelings for other people's property. <laughs> uh, and I need, that's greed and covetousness. And, you know, of the Ten Commandments, you know, the 10th commandment is do not covet. So change your heart. Um, Paul remarks, you know, there's all these other commands, you know, don't sleep around. I can obey that. But how do I not covet? That's, that's pretty deep, right? Um, so God made us to be good, bodies and souls. We're not. Bodies and souls have been harmed by the fall. The resurrection in Christ will heal bodies and souls. And move in our Christian lives now, we are moving toward the, the final eschaton. We are redeemed now. That doesn't mean um, our bodies work perfectly. It doesn't mean that my soul has been cleansed of all covetousness. Um, my sins are forgiven, and the Holy Spirit is working in me to make me into the person I should be. Um, the physical changes will come when I get a spiritual body <laughs> in resurrection. I'll be able to run a lot faster than I do now. Um, but the spiritual changes, the heart changes, are happening, we hope, we believe, now that mm -hmm. we ought to submit to the work of the Spirit. So the problem of listen to your heart and you do you is that I don't, I'm not supposed to do me. I'm supposed to do a better me. I'm supposed to become a better me. Um, so we need a different vision of what the true person is. And now this sounds so Sunday schoolish. The true person is not to be found in my heart. The true person is to be found by looking at Jesus. This is what I'm supposed to become like. When we understand the resurrection by hints of his body, we understand true human nature when we look at the way Jesus treated people. The way, mm -hmm. And he had, notice he has fears, he has frustrations, he has faith, he has long suffering. We can identify with Christ in many, many ways. So he becomes our model, hmm. I think. Hmm. Yeah, that yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and then there's something. I mean, I guess my when I look at therapeutic dualism, I think the biggest hesitation I has is the denigration of the body and like mm -hmm. the depersonalization of the body. Mm -hmm. Because you could some of the language you just said describing the idea of Christian conversion. You can hear sometimes that same language when when people talk about gender transition, mm -hmm. like, you know, you must become your true self. You must, mm -hmm. um, you know, change. You must, you, you know what I'm saying? So there has to be a sense in which, the, I don't know, there's, there's also a sense in which, like, we are something and we're right. becoming more fully that thing. Yes. Right. But if a human being is a unity of body and soul, then our bodily life is a part of that and can't just be denied. That's a part of our nature that is being converted. This right? is the and, body yeah. and soul, not body versus soul. Um, <clears throat> and there are many, many ways to misunderstand it. Some people, I, I read a term paper not, not long ago, yesterday, um, that described, well, the way to capture this is to say that God made us so we are perfect. Hmm. Well... 
That is just not true. Consider the Christian parent who has a child who has a significant uh, disability, born, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we, used to, we used to call brutally birth defects. Mm -hmm. Oh, our language is hopefully improved. The parent loves that child mm -hmm. and cares for that child. But does the parent think that that child is born perfect? If the parent could, if, and with, if with some minor birth defects, we can medically change them. And um, the parents will say, yeah, I want to help mm -hmm. my kid. Um, we don't want to glorify the way we are right now. Um, we don't want to reify the way we are right now. Um, even our bodies can be improved. But certainly our character can be improved. Um, we are all aware uh, that we are not made perfect. We need to improve. Mm -hmm. um, now, over the last 60 seconds I, or two minutes, I've just talked about really sensitive stuff mm -hmm. for people with um, disabilities of various kinds. Mm -hmm. um, we treasure people. There is a woman that uh, attends our church who's in her 40s. She has the mind that she's had since she was six. Um, her mother, who is my age, um, has to take care of her. Mm -hmm. has had, and now that her mother is not able to take care of her, she has put her in an institution to take care of this woman. This woman loves to come to our church. She loves to sit behind me and my wife. She delighted to come to our wedding. She thought mm -hmm. that was so cool. Mm -hmm. um, all, uh, but she's, what shall we say about a case like this? Did God make her perfect? God loves her perfectly. Mm -hmm. God intends f wonderful things for her in the resurrection. There's tremendous mystery. Her entire life has been lived under this tremendous um, intellectual disability. Um, does she suddenly... Is she transformed at the resurrection? Would she be the same person if she were transformed at the resurrection? These are mysteries that I don't know. Uh, there's tremendous hope, and I don't want to speak, you know, say things that are taken as being harmful to this wonderful woman who has taken care of her daughter through all of these decades as she's grown up and never become more than a six-year-old. Hmm. Well, it seems like you would need a kind of the kind of Christian anthropology that we're talking about in order to really value all people, including those who mm -hmm. have certain kinds of disabilities and intellectual disabilities, right? Because mm -hmm. if you if you privilege rationality or the thinking self mm -hmm. as that which is most true about a human person, then that becomes a problem when you oh, have, yeah. Yeah. you know, individuals like you've described, or even just like babies, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like just mm -hmm. um, human beings at different or very, 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 very elderly people with dementia or whatever, right? Yeah. So, but if you have that both and kind of anthropology that you're talking about, then that means that, you know, if you have a human person, body and soul, whatever stage of development, whatever stage of capacity, that being is made in the image of God, body yes. and soul. Yes. But there is a sense in which there's a fullness and a restoration that will happen to us mm -hmm. at the resurrection, mm -hmm. right? But then there's this idea of teleolo teleology, which I think is really important. And maybe that's what's really missing in therapeutic dualism, right? There's, yeah. it, whether you look at Marx or Freud or Nietzsche, or whatever those strains are, I think one thing they share in common is that they've lost that teleological vision of the human person, um, which Christianity keeps and, you know, borrows it from Aristotle. A footnote here. Marx has it in a tiny way. After the, after the revolution, the revolution. <laughs> after the revolution, true human species being will emerge. We will become holy. Okay. Uh, right. Now, this like is kind of this more, Hegel yeah, idea. Really yeah. bizarre, weird idea. Yeah. Uh, um, it's, but it's there it's in Marx. There. Give Marx credit. There, there's a little bit of teleology there. It's right. unbelievable, but there it is. Right. <laughs> but I think that concept helps us even in, you know, you, you, you mentioned, um, you know, people who were born with certain kinds of congenital conditions and, you know, like say if, if, a, if some kind of medical or surgical therapy could help restore their body to its fully functioning. I mean, that's a, that's a restorative process that's in line with mm -hmm. kind of the, the telos of the human body. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but that's different than, say, choosing to have a kind of surgical intervention that actually impedes the telos of the human body right. in order to kind of meet this, this ideal mm -hmm. where you're kind of working against the kind of being that you are in order, in order to bring out this, this kind of sense of self, in order to actualize this sense of self that doesn't already exist, right? But there is this idea that the body is somehow a lie that mm -hmm. has to be corrected. Yeah. Um, and that's where, that's where I think, you, you know, that, that understanding departs from a Christian anthropology. I think so. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there are some cases of um, deafness from birth that can be corrected by surgery. Should parents allow, allow their children to become hearing? Well, the parents who are hearing parents think, yeah, we should, right. we'll pay. But there are some members of the deaf community who protest, yep. you are stealing our people yeah, because they, they should be part of us because right. th this is their nature. Um, right. And if you adopt that God made everybody perfect, then God made them this way on purpose, and they should be deaf. Mm -hmm. um, well, mm -hmm. I'm in fa I'm on I'm on the side of the parents. They should be able to have this surgery yeah. if they want to. Oh, that's um, it, it's just an illustration of the point that you mm -hmm. just made. Right. Well, thank you so much, Phil. This has been fun, right. and um, I'll definitely have you back on sometime. Maybe we can talk about hope more. And okay. Um, but it's been wonderful. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. 